I'm sorry about the America um, stories, but you're going to get them for a few weeks yet. In New York, you can buy a genuine New York Yankees hat like this one for $25. I bought one for me. Or you can buy an imitation New York Yankees hat like this one for $5. I bought five of these ones for the family. <laughs> but don't tell them because this one actually has a sticker on it saying it's the genuine thing. No one will know. Now, apparently, the um, imitation goods industry, okay, people who make imitation goods, things that look like the real thing, but they're not the real thing, according to Time magazine, makes over $450 billion a year. Okay? That is 6% of world trade on imitation goods. And you might have uh, seen it yourself or had friends who've gone overseas. Levi's jeans that cost $9 instead of $90. But of course, they're not really Levi's, although they look like it. DVDs that cost 50 cents or a dollar from barley instead of $20. And it seems that most people don't really care if they have a counterfeit product. But sadly, for some people, it's the same with God. They don't care if they worship an imitation God. Whatever it might be, money or work or family... What we're going to be seeing today from Ezekiel is, sure, you might get away with buying imitation goods. No one will know the difference. But you will not get away with worshipping an imitation God, a false God. So the passage in Ezekiel 8 is talking to people who follow imitation gods. And what we find out is that God hates imitation gods. God hates idols things that are set up in place of him. So if you open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1, we're looking at it in three sections. You can see them on your outline. God hates idolatry in chapter 8. God will punish idolatry in chapter 9 to 11. But then, wonderfully, that God will fix idolatry right at the end. So let's pick it up at Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month of the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court. Now, you'll notice there that we're in, now in the sixth year of the exile. Last week, in chapter 1, we were in the fifth year of the exile. So one year has passed between the vision in chapter 1 and the vision here in chapter 8. But in terms of where Ezekiel is, nothing has changed. Last week, you remember that Ezekiel was in Babylon under the judgment of God. Well, again, this week, Ezekiel is still in Babylon, a thousand miles from Jerusalem, under the judgment of God. But here, God takes Ezekiel in a vision all the way back to Jerusalem to see what's going on back there. Ezekiel wouldn't have been there for six years, but God is going to show Ezekiel 
in, the, in Babylon what's going on back in Jerusalem. Now, the temple, remember, it's not just like a church. They didn't have temples all over uh, the nation of Israel. The temple was the one place in Jerusalem where God had chosen to dwell among his people. The temple was the special place where people could come each year and offer sacrifices to God. And what happens in chapter 8 is God takes Ezekiel on a tour of the temple, a temple tour that has four stops. And at each stop, Ezekiel's in for a shock because each place in the temple has become a crime scene. It is Things are going on that are just detestable to God. You can see the four scenes on your outline there. Let's have a look at them one by one. Scene one, verse five, and we're at the north gate of the temple, kind of the gate to the courtyard of the temple. Verse five. Then he said to me, son of man, look towards the north. So I looked. And in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing here? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here. Things that will drive me far away from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. This is not a good start to the tour, is it? There is an imitation God, an idol, at the entrance to the temple court. Now, it's bad enough to have an idol anywhere in the land of Israel, but to do it right at the entrance of the temple court, well, we were opposing a sex shop next door to our church building, weren't we? But here, God's people themselves have put an idol right on the driveway in clear view of everyone. It's not a very good start. But there's three stops to go, and it gets worse. The second scene is verse 7. Not only do they have idols outside the temple, it seems that inside the temple, they've graffitied the walls with pictures of these idols. And not just that, pictures of detestable creatures. Look at verse 7. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked, and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, go in and see all the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. God is giving Ezekiel a peep inside the temple through the wall here. Verse 10. So I went and looked and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. And it gets worse, because it's not just, it's actually the leaders, the elders who are involved in all this. Look at verse 12. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. That's scene two. Scene three in verse 14 and 15, uh, it doesn't get any better. Here he sees women crying for Tammuz. Now, if you're reading the Bible, we've got no idea who Tammuz is because this Tammuz does not appear anywhere else in the Bible. If you dig around a bit outside the Bible, you'll see that Tammuz was a time of month when they used to worship a god called Tammuz. But in the end, it doesn't matter who or what Tammuz is. The point is, 
Israel uh, worshipping, wailing, mourning for someone who is not God. This is another false god. And in the fourth scene, well, it's no different. God takes Ezekiel here to the very front of the temple, okay? Between the altar, where they were meant to be sacrificing to God, and between the steps of the temple. And what he finds are people worshipping the sun, bowing down to the sun with their backsides towards the temple. Look at verse 16. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple, between the portico, the porch, and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. Can you imagine how offensive that must be to God? These people are just making a complete mockery of him all over the temple, idols, worshipping other gods, bowing down to the sun. And you might have noticed as Paul read, there was this little refrain through it all, do you see this? Almost as if God just can't believe his eyes. He can't believe what his people are doing. So chapter 8, verse 6. Son of man, do you see what they're doing? Verse 12. Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing? Verse 15. Do you see this, son of man? Verse 17. Have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger see it's not just that there's idols bad as that is they're doing it right under God's nose it's like a husband coming home early from work and finding his wife in their own bed in their own home with another man this is happening right in the temple right under God's nose And God is jealous. He is outraged. Look at verse 18. Therefore, I'll deal with them in my anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Even though they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. God has had enough. And in the next three chapters, we see his response. In, uh, in Shanghai, the counterfeit goods trade has become so blatant, so bad, that the authorities d- decided to wipe it out. So last month, on the 30th of June, uh, they just came in one night and they bulldozed the whole thing down. The whole markets, the biggest markets in Shanghai, closed down, gone. Too many people were complaining about it. No more imitation goods. Well, here in Jerusalem, God has had enough. But he's not just closing down the temple. That wouldn't be enough. He is going to punish those people who've treated him with such disrespect. And his punishment takes two forms. Firstly, well, he's going to leave the temple. And secondly, he's going to destroy the people who disobeyed him. Now, don't underestimate how terrible the first one is. We think the second one looks bad. But God is leaving the temple. The whole of the Old Testament, if you think about it, is about God coming to live with his people. 
That's the, that's the defining thing about Israel. They were God's people. God had chosen them. He was going to live among them. So he rescues them in the Exodus and he promises, you'll be my people. And then in Deuteronomy, he gives them the rules there to obey once they're his people in the land. And then in Kings, in Joshua, they enter the land. In Kings, God builds his temple and he comes and he makes his dwelling place among them. That's what the whole Old Testament story has been building up to. And now it's all about to be undone. He's leaving them. And so in these next two chapters, that's exactly what God does. In three stages, he leaves the temple. You can see the three stages on the picture there. Um, in chapter 9, verse 5, I think that 3, that is, that's 9, verse 3. He moves from inside the temple to the doorway of the temple. Then in chapter 10, verse 18, he moves from the doorway of the temple to his traveling chariot. And then in 11, verse 22, at the end, he leaves Jerusalem altogether and he goes to the Mount of Olives. And between each of those movements comes more judgment. More people are destroyed. And so it's this cycle of God distances himself from the temple, and then he destroys the people in Jerusalem. Then he moves a bit further away, and then more judgment, and so on. Now, I don't know what you're like uh, at saying goodbyes, but I'm terrible. Just ask Jill. So when I say goodbye, I often give all the children a kiss and say goodbye. That's in the kitchen. Then I walk out to the lounge room. Then I stop and I do it all over again. Goodbye. Then I walk out the front door. Then there's some more goodbyes. And then when I hop in the car, there's some more goodbyes and waving. And then I'm out the road. And Jill says even this, I'm under-exaggerating under what it's really like. It's, it's even worse than this. It's just move a bit further, goodbye. Now that's kind of what's happening here. Only God's goodbyes are his judgment. He distances himself from them, more judgment. He moves a bit further away from the temple, more judgment. Let's have a look at that cycle a little bit, shall we? So in chapter 9, verse 1, he first announces his judgment. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, that's where the first vision was, remember, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. God announces his judgment. Then in verse 3, he makes his first move. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim, that's uh, in the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple, to the front door. Well, then the judgment starts down in verse 7. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. While they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down crying, ah, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? terrifying judgment Ezekiel is scared well then down in chapter 10 verse 18 God is on the move again he moves from the threshold of the temple out to his chariot and so on the cycle goes he departs he destroys he departs he destroys the two consequences of Israel's idolatry you don't want to worship me I'll leave you but I'll also punish you for your consequences. 
and all the way right through till chapter 11, verse 23, where finally God leaves Jerusalem altogether and he heads off to the Mount of Olives. There's that cycle of leaving and destruction. The noticeable exception to that cycle is twice in those three chapters, Ezekiel actually stops God and interrupts him and asks him a question. The first question was back in chapter 9, verse 8. Look at it. While they were killing, and I was left alone, I fell face down, crying out, Ah, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? See, Ezekiel actually gets it. Ezekiel realises that God is serious here. For time after time, God has warned his people and judged them and warned them and judged them and God has shown mercy upon mercy upon mercy but here, he's actually going to do it. And so he asks God, is this, is this it, God? Is this the end of your plans? Well, look at God's answer. Verse 9 of chapter 8. Oh no, of chapter 9. Sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Chapter 9, verse 9, he answered me, The sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say, the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord doesn't see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. God says, I'm not showing any pity here, Ezekiel. This is for real. They're getting finally what they deserve. We can often get so used to God showing mercy and forgiving that we don't realise that God's patience does run out. And Ezekiel feels the terror of that. In fact, for a second time, Ezekiel asks exactly the same question. Look down at chapter 11, verse 13. Chapter 11, verse 13, in the last outpouring of judgment, Ezekiel asks the, last, the question again. Now, as I was prophesying, Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Ah, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? Now, this time you'll notice, God's answer is a little different. Because even though his limit is reached, even though his anger is aroused, and even though, yes, he is destroying the people in Jerusalem, this is not the end of his people. Because God says, I'm destroying Jerusalem, but Ezekiel, I still have you. I still have my people in Babylon. And they're the ones that I will bring back. Let's pick it up. From verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, your brothers, your brothers who are your blood relatives and the whole house of Israel are those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said, they're far away from the Lord. 
this land was given to us as our possession. In other words, the people in Jerusalem are saying of, the, of Ezekiel and his relatives in Babylon, they're gone. Well, God's changing around. God's saying, no, the people of Jerusalem are gone, but the exiles in Babylon, I'll bring them back. Look at verse 16. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They'll return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I'll give them an undivided heart. See, this is how God will fix idolatry. He'll give them a new heart and I'll put my spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Yes, Jerusalem and its inhabitants will be wiped out, but God is going to bring back his scattered exiles and start again. And this time it will be different. He's not just going to repair Israel, he's going to give them a new heart, an undivided heart. See, that was the problem with them, wasn't it? They're hard hearts. And God's going to give his people hearts that are for him. Now that is exactly what Jesus was talking about 700 years later after Ezekiel when he meets Nicodemus at night and he says to Nicodemus, an Israelite, you must be born again. Nicodemus, if you want to escape God's judgment and be part of his people, you must be born again by the Spirit of God, which is where we fit in, isn't it? God has extended his promise of his Spirit to us. And here's where it gets exciting. Israel could never obey the law, but because of Jesus, we can. In fact, we have. I mean... Hands up how many of you can say that you have always had an undivided heart for God? Anyone? Of course not. We deserve exactly what Israel got. But because of Jesus' death in our place where he took our punishment, we've had our idolatry forgiven. And it gets even better than that. Not just are we forgiven, Jesus has given each one of us his spirit. We now have hearts where he's inside of us and we want to love him. That's the great difference between us and Israel. We can love God because we want to love him because he's given us a new heart that is for him. The spirit is actually on our side now, not against us, but for us, to help us. And the New Testament warns us, encourages us as Christians to cooperate with the spirit of God and get rid of those things that are still hanging around that try and dethrone God. The way Colossians puts it is this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Jesus wants us to have nothing that rivals him. The call of this passage is to have an undivided heart for God. 
as you reflect on your life, what kinds of things divide your heart from God? What kinds of things that should be second place come in and take first place? Is it money? Security? Your work? Your house? Your children? I don't know what it is. It's different for each one of us. Your success? Your hobbies? Fashion? Career? Sport? Marriage? The way you look? Your business? Now, that list I've read, they're all good things, aren't they? But if they are the first thing in your life, they've become an idol. Because God demands first place in our lives. 13 years ago, uh, roughly, Jill got chronic fatigue. And uh, it never seems to go away. Six years ago, for a while, it turned into depression. And that's a funny thing that keeps coming back and doesn't go away too. Now, most of the time, we cope all right. Sometimes, it's worse than others. Sometimes, it drives us both to prayer and to trust God. Other times, it just drives me to frustration. I just wish it would go away and Jill would be back to what she was 14 years ago. Now, sometimes I can see what God's doing in it all because it's teaching me things, helps us trust him more. But most of the time, I just wish it would go away. Now, in all that, here's the question to work out if I have an idol. What does my heart want? If my deepest desire is for Jill to be healthy, if that's the most important thing to me above all other things, that Jill could be healthy then that's become an idol. That is placing second things first. What I should desire is that whatever happens to Jill, whatever God wills, that he's glorified through it and that we both honour him through it. And if I get it the other way around, if I put health before God's glory, that's idolatry, isn't it? So whenever I pray about Jill, it has to be, Lord... We would love this to go away, love to have Jill healthy, but your will be done, not ours. What's, what's, uh, when you're praying, where do you find it hard to say, your will be done? What things do you find hard to let go of? What's more important to you, that your marriage is good or that God is glorified even if your marriage is tough? What if God is best glorified in you as you battle day after day to love a spouse who doesn't love you back? Are you willing to say, I'll do it, God? You can be first. I'll give up my dream of a a happy marriage if you'll be glorified in this one. What's more important to you, that you have an enjoyable job Or that God is glorified in you, whatever your job's like. I mean, what if God is best glorified if your sickness stays and just keeps staying? Now, all those things are great things to pray for, that I'll love my wife, that she'll love me, that I'll have a better marriage, that work is enjoyable, that my sickness will get better. But am I willing to say at the end, Lord, this is a second thing. You're first. 
What kinds of things for you most tempt you to give God second place? The leftovers. Happiness? Freedom from pain? Control over what happens to you? Friendships? Your children and their happiness? Anything in your life that you desire more than God is an idol and it makes him jealous and it brings him disgrace. That's where that passage from Matthew 10 fits in. Jesus says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus demands first place in our lives. But I just want to end by saying, he doesn't want our motivation to be compulsion or guilt. He doesn't force our hand. He's not going to force us into this. He's given us his spirit. And if we are God's people, this is actually what we want. If you have the Spirit of God in you, this is what you want. Now, sure, there may be things that you struggle with and that just uh, grab your heart and pull you a certain way, but at your core, look deeper than that, his Spirit is at work. And his Spirit actually means that we do desire to have him first. So let's get rid of those seductive idols that are tricking us into thinking that they're more, more important than him. And let's live from the heart that he's given us, the new heart, the undivided heart, the heart that's for him. Okay, let's pray.